Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Artist Judy Chicago made her name in the 1970s with her groundbreaking feminist piece, The Dinner Party. That work, featuring representations of 39 important women in history at a triangular table, has come to define her in the world to such an extent that Chicago has said she didn't know if she'd live long enough to escape the shadow of that iconic piece. But now, in the first ever retrospective of her career... The full range of the 82-year-old artist's work is on exhibit at San Francisco's de Young Museum. Her work features a vast array of material, sculpture, textile, paint, glasswork, and an exploration of death, birth, and power through a feminist lens. Joining me now is Judy Chicago. Welcome to Forum. Thank you. We also have with us the exhibit curator, Claudia Schmuckli. Welcome, Claudia. Hi, it's nice to be with you today. So, Judy Chicago, what has the experience of working on your first retrospective been like? Is it making you see your body of work or, or individual works within it in a different light? Uh, first of all, it's very important to understand that although I was involved in it, all the heavy lifting was done by Claudia. When a curator as gifted as Claudia decides to turn her attention to your career, you, you know, it's like a major commitment. So working with Claudia was a joy. And what she did, I think, in the way she put the retrospective together and the fact that she installed it so that viewers enter from my most recent work instead of in a traditional way, um, gave viewers, I think the opportunity for the first time to understand my practice, the way I approach making art. And also I used to go around saying, I wonder if that body of my work will ever come out from behind the shadow of the dinner party. And Claudia accomplished that. Judy, I wasn't even going to mention the dinner party. I was just going to leave it till the very end. And I was going to say, hey, could you notice we hadn't talked about the dinner party? Uh, the dinner party, of course, Judy Chicago's f- famous work uh, from the 1970s that kind of touched off this really interesting dynamic in your career, right, Judy, in which you were extremely popular, but had a kind of fraught relationship with sort of the high art world. That's an understatement. I think Claudia should address that. <laughs> sure, Claudia. <laughs> well, yes, I think it's fair to say that uh, the dinner party is uh, as important a work as it is, um, both then and now. As you may know, it has entered the annals of art history as one of the iconic 
feminist works of art and it's permanently housed at the Brooklyn Museum, has also, uh, you know, overshadowed Judy's career uh, for all the decades um, before and after, for, as a matter of fact. And so one of the main goals of this exhibition was to, to allow Judy and her work to step out of the shadow of the dinner party and to, to make visitors realize the incredible output uh, or the vastness of the oeuvre that she has created before and after. And, uh, and sort of for once and all, just sort of like put the dinner party in the context of a much broader practice uh, than is generally known. You know, Claudia, there really is such a tremendous amount of creativity and styles and media that's at play in the show and throughout Judy Chicago's career. And, you, and really, you can see that the different eras are very kind of clearly uh, delineated. What did you see as the sort of connective themes and, and tissue between these different eras, though? There are a few through lines um, through Judy's work that are consistent throughout. One of them is a knack for identifying the difficult and pressing issues of her time, um, whether society is willing or not to discuss it, whether the art world is willing or not to discuss it at that very moment. But Judy has never shied away from, from thinking about what are, what are the critical issues that we need to think about at any given moment. And each body of work uh, is conceived around, you know, one such subject and theme, which she always investigates with incredible rigor uh, over long periods of time, um, both researching the subject matter, but also the material articulation of the ideas that she wants to, wants to get across. Okay. There's a, a very sort of clear preoccupation with power throughout her entire work. Who has it? Who doesn't have it? You know, there's a concern with social justice throughout um, that uh, that connects each body of work and a deep a deep humanity um, paired with the desire to speak to as many people as possible. Uh, uh, Judy, I wanted to ask you, I, I found your meditations on death and extinction series extremely moving. I thought the mortality relief totally stunning. And I also started to wonder whether that actually helps pre prepare you or, or prepare prepare anybody, particularly you as the artist for the end. Or like, how do you even, is, is that even what that work is about? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I started the, the end, I mean, as you probably know, if you know anything about my life or my career, uh, I've had a lot of death in my life starting from when I was very young. Mm -hmm. So I was always acutely aware of my mortality. In fact, I still can't believe I'm so old. I never <laughs> expected to get so old. Just never crossed my mind. Congratulations. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, in 2012, I had some health issues and I started thinking about, um, well, the shadow mortality also as I got older, the shadow mortality was getting larger. And, you know, the way we deal with death in this society 
is sort of like we deal with a lot of other things like climate change, the pandemic, uh, birth, anything uncomfortable. Like uh, there was a museum that owned some birth project work. They couldn't, they, they felt they couldn't show it. Mm. I'm like, really? You can't show it? These, because we have, you have a lot of kids coming. I mean, if they notice what kids look at on the internet, <laughs> I mean, why should a natural process like birth be something that can't be shown in the, in a museum? Okay. Anyway, so at, you know, I did my usual process. I decided I wanted to take up the subject. I also wanted to understand how other cultures had dealt with death and dying. And so I started down this path and my hope was that when I emerged on the other side, I would be able, I would be prepared to face my own death with courage and humor. Now, whether I'm going to be able to do it, I don't know if I'll be here to know. <laughs> My goal for a very, very long time has been to see if there's a way to make the female, female experiences stand as universal life experiences the way the male experience has for his, throughout history. Mm -hmm. You know, like even the thing man, mankind, mm -hmm. you know, we're, women are subsumed in this because man is universal. Yeah, right. Anyway, so um, I feel like I really achieved that in the end. And in other, like when Dal and I unveiled the Holocaust Project, which is 50, we had decided to make it a gender balanced project. In other words, to deal with both male and female experience, which, um, it's quite different from how the Holocaust is presented worldwide. It's almost always presented from a male perspective. Mm. But anyway, when it was unveiled, many people commented that it was about women in the Holocaust, mm. even though women only occupied 50% of the images. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting, you know, because if you deal with women, somehow that's not dealing with all of humanity. It, it even minimizes the amount of space you get, gave to men. It was really fascinating. Mm. So in contrast, nobody has said anything about that in, in terms of the mortality series. You know, Judy Chicago, people, people often refer to your work as, you know, iconic feminist art. But I imagine that your own feminism has not been sort of static through the years. So how do you think your feminism has changed and how's that reflected in the work? Well, I don't think my philosophy has changed at all. It's just broadened. And um, I mean, I see the world through a feminist prism. What does that mean? It means, for example, when Angela Merkel made her decision to bring uh, a thousand refugees into Germany. That's how it was described, a thousand refugees. But it wasn't a thousand refugees. It was almost all men. Hmm. And nobody noticed that or commented on it. And then they were, and most of them were young men. And uh, then they were all shocked when they began to have all these gender issues 
from young men who had been reared to see women in a whole different way than they're seen in the West. So that's looking at history and current events through a feminist prism. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, that's completely male-centered. That's a male, and, and it's, it's invisible. So you would be surprised how, if you look at the world through a feminist prism, how really deeply off balance it is, not just in terms of political power, but what's deemed important. So for when I was working on the birth project, uh, you know, th there were very few images of birth that were known. In, I used to say there were very few images of birth in contemporary art. But there's a curator, na curator named Massimiliano Gioni, who's the head curator at the New Museum in New York. Mm -hmm. And he did this incredible show in Milan, which Donald and I actually, my husband, we were in Europe and we went to Italy to see it. It was called The Great Mother. And I made this incredible discovery because it wasn't that there weren't any images of birth in contemporary art, is that they had not entered the, the, the discourse. Mm -hmm. So it isn't, wasn't just that women artists were deeply discriminated against. It was what women do representation left of out right so images of birth maternity motherhood they're only recently entering the discussion because what women do is not valued so you know step by step after i did the birth project i started looking at the construct of masculinity before there were gender studies or queer theory or masculinity studies. And then Donald and I took up the subject of the Holocaust, which taught me that women's experience has to be seen in a larger context of injustice and oppression on the planet. So my views began to widen and expand and if they didn't get far enough, my experience of doing the flowering, my autobiography that was just published mm -hmm. a month before the retrospective, not anticipated the result of the pandemic. Um, I had a young, probably non-binary editor who raised a lot of questions about 70s feminist thinking. And it was fantastic to have the opportunity to go through my autobiographical writings and evaluate them from where I am now and think, God, how could I have thought that? That was really stupid. <laughs> so yes, my views have definitely broadened. Um, before we let you go, I know that you've been really inspiring to a lot of artists here uh, in California and globally, of course. Uh, one of the things that you said in an interview was, because of art world resistance, I got few tangible rewards for my work, so I made creating art my reward. Is that good advice for other young artists to follow, or should they be trying to attend to the sort of career aspects if they can? It depends upon their goals. 
my goals from the beginning of my career were very clear. I wanted to become part of art history. I, I, I didn't think about like making money. In fact, when I saw the installation in the De Young of the Holocaust Project, I said to Donald, I don't know why I hadn't thought about this before. I said to Donald, you know, it just occurred to me when we started the eight year journey into the Holocaust, it never occurred to either of us to ask, is anybody going to buy art on this subject? <laughs> it just never even <laughs> crossed our minds. <laughs> so, you know, because that was not for me what was important. And also I came up before the advent of the kind of international art market as it is today. So it depends upon a young artist's goal. If their goal is to make money, fine. If their goal is to, you know, like have be a flash in the pan, be a quick success, make a lot of money and get in, get out. If I don't, you know, it depends on their goals, right, Claudia? Neither extreme, I think, is is great um, to have to face in your career. Uh, although, of course, Judy certainly has made the most productive out of <laughs> productive uh, uh, endeavor out of the objection that she had faced. But uh, but obviously, uh, it's been a struggle, and there there were you know moments where uh, it was very difficult for her, and it would have been it would have been great if she had found a little more support. But as she said earlier, on the flip side, you know, too much support too soon can also can also um, have negative impacts on somebody's career because then you get caught up into this machinery uh, of, of uh, having to produce and produce and produce for a voracious market that uh, sometimes uh, is detrimental to the, the creative development of, of a young artist. So finding that sweet spot in between, between an adequate level of support and uh, and enough time for research and development in the studio is is a desirable goal for every artist, I would say. We've been talking about the Judy Chicago retrospective at the DeYoung Museum. We've been joined by the artist Judy Chicago, as well as the exhibit curator Claudia Schmuckli, curator in charge of contemporary art and programming at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Congratulations on the retrospective, Judy Chicago. And Claudia. Thank and you. Claudia, <laughs> and Claudia as well. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Judy Chicago, a retrospective is at the DeYoung through January 9th. Forum is produced by Tina Lauerberg, Susan Britton, Ariana Prail, and Blanca Torres with help this week from Dan Zoll. Caroline Smith is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. And just a quick heads up on a show we're working on. A new report by the Economic Policy Institute alleges that thousands of migrant tech workers have been underpaid by tens of millions of dollars. We're going to be covering this story next week, and we want to hear from you. Are you an H-1B visa holder working in tech? Email us, forum at kqed.org. That's forum at kqed.org if you're an H-1B visa holder. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Have a great weekend. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.